Paul sounded like a perfect fit for us. Just three of us together up on a gorgeous mountain. We were completely unprepared for what was about to happen. We were in the wrong place at the wrong time. been hit with its worst earthquake in decades. The powerful quake flattened sections of Kathmandu and triggered avalanches at Mount Everest. Oh, oh. It looked like a bomb went off. There were more than 150 people on the mountain. I don't think I stopped to really imagine that it was any worse anywhere else. Knowing what I know now, that seems terribly naive. Nobody was prepared for the disaster of this scale. Nepal wasn't prepared at all. It was a nightmare. Where the village had been, there was nothing there. Couldn't even see a single roof. You don't have time to think. You're just trying to make the next right decision to save yourself. Good afternoon, KZMU listeners in Moablandia and beyond. This is Lisa, your host of Great Wide Open. Heard here on KZMU most second Mondays of every month at 4 p.m. And guess what? It is December, so it is time for the annual Great Wide Open Media Review Show. And I want to let you folks know at the outset that though normally I do this show live and in the studio, today I am recording from the confines of my own home studio a.k.a. bedroom, a.k.a. office, because, uh, yeah, there's a lot of uh, cavorting wee beasties flying around in the air, and our house has had an exposure to such cavorting wee beasties. So, in an abundance of caution, I am doing this typically live show from my home today and recording it. Upshot of that is the audio might be a little funny and not up to the typical KZMU standards. This annual media year in review show has become um, a bit of a tradition here on Great Wide Open. If you have not heard the media review show before, I suggest you check out our previous versions on the kzmu.org website or any place you care to get your podcasts. This show is also um, a compilation of things that I have heard or read, well peppered with suggestions from you, the KMU Great Wide Open listeners. At the outset of this recording, you heard a Netflix documentary that we are going to talk about later on in the show. But for now, we're going to get things started out with book reviews. I have four books that we're going to discuss today, and coincidentally, this was not intentional, even though you know how I love to joke on Great Wide Open that it doesn't take more than an episode before we get back to climbing-related topics. Three of the books that we're going to talk about today were written by climbers, and all three were written by female climbers, so that was kind of a serendipitous thing that happened that these three books fell into my lap, but we're going to talk about a recommendation from one of our listeners, and this is called Men to Match My Mountains. As we know, on the Great Wide Open Media Review Show, there is no such thing as too current or too old to be on this media review. And this uh, book was written in 1956, and it was recommended to me by previous guest of the show and listener, Trish Hedin. She was assigned in college, and it just sounds super fascinating. I have not read this myself. And it's basically uh, a nonfiction historical novel that follows a dozen individuals who helped shape the 19th century American presence in the areas now known as California, Nevada, Utah, and Colorado. So obviously this has a lot of regional uh, resonance for those of us who live or have lived long time in Utah. Uh, it covers a time period from 1840 when most of the American West was owned by the Mexican Empire 
and goes through till 100, follows what was going on in the American West during periods of tumult in our country, probably most notably the Civil War, which the American West was largely able to stay out of, but during that time period, quite a lot went on. The building of mines, the discovery of silver and gold, and the influx of immigrants, and of course, regionally, the uh, migration of Brigham Young to Utah to grow the Mormon faith out here where they worked to, quote, calm the desert and develop a culture of teamwork and devoted work that allowed the Mormons' economic prospects to grow. I think this is sounding like a fascinating read, and I am very grateful to Trish for bringing this to my and possibly your attention to put on my winter reading list. Continuing on along our ride in the Wayback Machine, we'll take a look at a book written by Katie Ives, who was a longtime editor at the highly vaunted Alpinist magazine. As well as being a great editor, Katie is also a great writer, and her book, Imaginary Peaks, The Risenstein Hoax, and Other Mountain Dreams, takes us to this time period in the 1960s when mountaineering was still somewhat of a fringe sport and there wasn't a lot of information out there, information about backcountry areas or ascents was pretty much word of mouth. And in 1962, this previously undocumented mountain range called the Risensteins appeared in Summit Magazine. What it turned out was that this was a hoax, and Katie, in this book, unpacks the cartographical mysteries of this hoax and the characters, particularly Harvey Manning, who was one of the driving forces behind uh, Mountaineering Freedom of the Hills, who perpetrated this prank on the climbers of the world. I, for one, had never heard of this prank, so this was all news to me, and, you know, living in today's world, it's so amazing to imagine that someone could pull this off and create a bunch of hype around a mountain range, an unexplored mountain range, but one that did not really exist. There is no carrot more enticing to a bunch of climbers than to think there could be some magically and magical unclimbed place or peak out there. So it's easy to see how folks could want to believe and want to be able to be the first person to go explore this non-existent mountain range. As one reviewer said, when we construct these pranks deep down, it's because we wish someone would do it for us, to lead us out there with the hope of the impossible, a journal description, a map fragment, a clue, leading to something just bordering the imagination. That is the fountainhead. That is the vague sunlit memory that launched us, because the next best thing to finding a treasure map is making a treasure map. I'm definitely putting this one on the reading table for these long and often cold winter nights and can't wait to see how this all unfolds. Okay, so we are going to exit the Wayback Machine and talk about a couple of books that were published this year, written by climbers who are still involved with the sport. And both of these books are memoirs and written by female climbers who are both grappling with different things in their lives. Uh, One of those things that is a common thread between these two books is motherhood and childhood and the paths that lead us to the people we are today.
Another commonality between these two books is the relationship that each of the authors has with climbing and their climbing experience, one of whom wrestles with trying to maintain her climbing career while embarking on motherhood. This is a topic we see very frequently with female athletes and particularly with female athletes who do more adventurous or what is considered high-risk sports as a professional career. Women get a lot of criticism for wanting to pursue their careers and their lifestyles once they have had children, more so than men, typically, particularly in high-risk sports like mountaineering or ski mountaineering, any type of expedition thing where the general public or family and friends might judge their desire to continue to pursue this lifestyle as self-serving or selfish. And this is often something that is not inflicted upon men who die or get injured to the same or if not a greater extent than women who participate in these endeavors, but they are not held to the same social standard as far as parenting is concerned. Micah Burhart's book, More, examines this topic as she writes about the transition she had to make with her husband from globetrotting, adventure-seeking, climbing lives to parenting and how that not only affected their ability to pursue uh, their passions, which were also tied up in their work and their dreams as individuals as well as being a team. Micah reports that she diligently kept letters and journals over the course of her pregnancy and the first five years of her children's lives and takes us on that journey with her as she explores the transformative and identity shifting experience of motherhood. And it's irreversible, and not saying that irreversible in a bad way, but its impact on uh, her career, identity, her marriage, and herself. Burhardt is quite candid in her portrayal of this journey, and I think we're seeing a lot of that out there in adventure sports, women coming out with their stories and really exploring this double standard that their male counterparts are not necessarily necessarily forced to endure as they pursue their dreams, goals, and careers. Our next climber author, who was also likely spurred to write her personal memoir following motherhood, is Katie Brown, whose book Unraveled was published this fall. Katie Brown is widely considered to be America's greatest sport climbing prodigy. Katie started climbing as a child in the 1990s and quickly became both a national and world champion in sport climbing, which at that time was a relatively new sport. We had had a generation of very successful sport climbing competitors, um, female competitors, with Lynn Hill and Robin Erbesfeld leading the way. And though it was still somewhat of a growing sport back then now, of course, an Olympic event, Katie rose somewhat preternaturally through the ranks of sport climbing with very little formal training, probably no formal training at all, just a complete um, natural talent who seemed indomitable at the sport. However, she remained somewhat of an enigma to the climbing world and to the climbing media because she did grow up in a very isolated environment with quite religious parents who kept the family very close at hand. 
Katie, in her memoir, discusses her time and travels during her teenage years as a climbing competitor, which were primarily spent with her mom. And during that time, she also, as she realized later in life, was living with an eating disorder. As a lot of us know, eating disorders are not uncommon in performance sports, and we have discussed this topic on Great Wide Open when we interviewed the uh, creator of the documentary, Light, which was specifically about eating disorders relating to climbing. Katie writes in her book that as a young child, she did not really even realize that she was suffering from an eating disorder until later on in life, she heard Dr. G, who we discussed um, in that interview with Caroline Treadway, the creator of Light the Documentary. And after hearing uh, Dr. Guadiani on NPR, Katie was spurred to examine her own life history and her battle with anorexia and how it related to her climbing and ultimately how it may have been a factor in her leaving climbing behind as she writes in her book she felt that people only really cared about her climbing and her climbing performance and nobody was asking hard questions about her, like, are you okay, uh, are you not eating, can we help you in any way? Like Micah, Katie kept very extensive journals uh, throughout her teenage years and throughout her competitive climbing career and was able to go back on those to reconstruct this memoir as she says, one of the things that happens when you have a chronic eating disorder is your memory is not that reliable because you just really don't have the energy to dedicate to remembering things. So she reconstructed much of this from her extensive journals and talks a lot about her isolation growing up in a very religious family and her relationship with her mom, which uh, was very complicated and affected her in very deep ways and not very positive ways. Katie is also very candid and frank with her recounting of this time and with the entries from her journal. It's never easy to read a book like this to uh, hear someone talk about how much suffering they were going through while mean, and you know, at the same time being a, a center of attention and being somewhat of a media darling or a media darling in your own sport. And that's what Katie was. And then it was too much and she left and everyone wondered what happened to Katie Brown. So if you want to know what happened to Katie Brown, then you will want to put Unraveled at the top of your winter reading list. And that basically wraps up my uh, winter, my annual winter book review portion of Great Wide Open's annual media review. But I will add a few uh, bonus shout-outs to uh, local climber and author, Steph Davis, her memoirs, High Infatuation and Learning to Fly, we've talked about on the show before on uh, the annual media review, but if you've not read those or these titles are new to you, I would also suggest adding those to the list. If you are just tuning in, I'd just like to remind you all that this is Great Wide Open one of our public affairs show here at KZMU. It airs on the second Monday of every month at 4 p.m. I am Lisa, your host, and we are in the midst of our annual outdoor recreation media review. Thank you so much for tuning in. And also, if you'd like to 
contribute to Great Wide Open, don't be shy. You can hit us up anytime at kzmugwo at gmail.com. I love getting listener suggestions and feedback and contributions for shows to come, including even next year's media review. I'd also like to let you know if you've just recently tuned into the show that if the audio sounds a little subpar from the normal KZMU standard, it is because I am recording the show not live as I usually do for the media review show, but from the confines of my so-called home studio, which is really a bedroom slash office at my house. And that's when violence started. I couldn't breathe. I was hyperventilating. Getting rescued would be a freaking battle for my life. Whatever I do, there is no way I can survive this. Moving on to the movie of our media review, we're going to hop on a jet across the world and land in the Everest of Nepal. The clip you just heard and the clip you heard at the onset of this show are from the Netflix three-part mini-documentary series called Aftershock which is a documentary about the unprecedented earthquake in 2015 in Nepal. The Himalayan region is a very seismically active area, but earthquakes of great magnitude do not occur in this region frequently. So I think it's fair to say that Nobody really saw this coming. Not that you ever really see a natural disaster coming with uh, any sort of time adequate to save all lives or get everybody out of the disaster zone. And as is typical for that time of year, there were a lot of Everest. It's a huge part of the Nepalese economy to take people on treks and on mountain adventures in this Everest region. And it's by no means a stretch to suggest, and we'll talk about this a bit more in our next uh, film review, it's not a stretch at all to suggest that most of the people who are climbing Everest these days are vastly unqualified Westerners who want to tag that summit. This Netflix miniseries deals with some of those people, typically mountaineering clients, but also with the residents of the area and the Sherpas and all the people who were affected by this earthquake. The earthquake killed over 9,000 people in the area, which includes fatalities in parts of India, China, and Bangladesh. And nearly 17,000 people were reported as injured, and nearly 3 million people were displaced by the earthquake. The earthquake triggered avalanches on Mount Everest that killed at least 19 people and stranded a bunch of people on the mountain. And that's where we get to this network which deals with the accident and the aftermath of what was to follow, and not only the aftermath of rescuing people from a high alpine zone, which in the quote-unquote best of conditions is still a harrowing and difficult endeavor, but add to that a region-wide natural disaster, avalanches, and then pretty much what can just be described as a Lord of the Flies mentality that starts to take over as people 
start fighting for their own survival. And it's a very interesting concept to consider, which is our innate desire to protect ourselves and to survive. Reportedly, the documentarians have received a little bit of criticism for focusing too much on the more privileged protagonists who were there to climb Mount Everest. They defend this decision by saying they would not have been as effective um, at spreading the story of the Nepalese people and the displaced people of the region from this natural disaster had they not had the uh, you know, first-hand accounts from the people who were on the mountain that day. As the producers say, it is a series we made about an earthquake, but it's really about these people and how they were changed and how they were revealed by their actions and behaviors. Something inside of them came out. I'd like to give a shout out to Kim, who is a listener of the show, for suggesting this series for this media review. She has also informed me that there's still much to be done in this region, and it will be a really long time before this region fully recovers. I'm actually going to stay in the Everest region for this next recommendation. And I can tell you that I did not ever see this one coming from a thousand miles away that I would have a great wide open outdoor recreation media review that came from last week tonight with John Oliver. In June of 2019, John Oliver on Last Week Tonight, his show on HBO, did a pretty outstanding expose on the whole climbing of Mount Everest and how dangerously popular it has become. I say astounding because the last place we typically go in the outdoor recreation world for reliably portrayed or even remotely accurate portrayals of climbing or most outdoor action sports is the quote-unquote standard media outlets. We've all read semi-hilarious, semi-painful articles and even such vaunted and storied publications as the New York Times where they typically give painfully inaccurate renditions of what an alpine climb is like or what big wave surfing is like. Take your pick. Typically, the writers or producers of shows like Last Week Tonight aren't that in touch with what it's really like in the outdoor world. But this show did a fantastic job representing the many, many shortcomings of commercialized big mountain guiding. Commercialized big mountain guiding is very, very profitable for those who run the trips, and it, they are highly incentivized to bring anybody with the financial means to pay the peak fees and pay the trip fees on these trips. Folks who may not have any mountaineering experience at all or who typically do not have mountaineering experience at all and may not have any climbing experience at all, but they have a checkbook that is fat enough to get them on these trips. And while not all the guiding services who take people big mountain mountaineering are disreputable by any means, there are plenty out there who are just after these big ticket trips and put many people's lives at risk, including their own guides, the Sherpas of the area, and the clients who have absolutely no business being on an 8,000 meter peak. One of the what we'll call problems with Mount Everest is that it is not a technical mountain as far as 8,000-meter peaks are concerned, or 7,000-meter peaks, or what have you. So 
it is a trip that they can sell to uh, someone who seems to be relatively fit and thinks they want to climb to the highest point in the world. Another thing that the average person might not be aware of is that on these big peaks, a lot of the death that occurs occurs on the way down when uh, people are going quite slowly and on Everest they infamously get in these huge bottlenecks. So basically people are trapped in a non-moving traffic jam with the very real and regular threat of life-threatening storms and avalanches and freezing cold temperatures and insanely high winds that can quite literally blow people off of the side of a mountain. John Oliver does a great job addressing all of these issues and then showing the very real threats to the guides and particularly the Sherpas of the region who are often tasked with going up and down the mountain multiple times in order to get the clients, the clientele, all the amenities that they might need or want and most perniciously want up there on the side of a mountain, like uh, tablecloths and candles for dinners, things like that, that pretty much have no place in a serious mountaineering environment. So kudos to John Oliver for bringing this issue to light in a way that was very accurately portrayed and not at all laughable in the sense of his knowledge of the topic. Okay, now we are going to talk about a film that possibly could not be more diametrically opposed to climbing Mount Everest. And this documentary is called Pick Up Your Feet. And it is a Emmy Award-winning documentary from 1981. Pick Up Your Feet, The Double Dutch Show, is Skip Blumberg's film about Double Dutch Show. And like I said, it first filmed in 1981, and or sorry, first aired in 1981 on Channel 13 in New York. It takes place at the center in New York City, and it's about the Double Dutch, which some people uh, might more readily know as jump roping or skip roping, but it's a lot more complicated than that competition, um, and how does this end up on Great Wide Open, you might ask? Well, that's a very good question to ask. A couple of weeks ago, I was uh, cruising along in my car listening to National Public Radio and heard this little piece about how the Fantastic Four took Double Dutch to new heights. Double Dutch rope skipping is largely accredited to Dutch settlers who brought it to America. But according to Lauren Walker, the president of the National Double Dutch League, Double Dutch is black girl magic. Black girls put it on the map. It came from a union of young girls in their community getting together to socialize and to engage in each other's dreams and ambitions. And for any of you out there wondering why, as kids, we would skip rope to songs like Miss Mary Mac. Uh, that is also part of the origin story. In 1973, according to this NPR piece, two New York City policemen, Ulysses Williams and the aforementioned Lauren Walker's father, David A. Walker, established double dutch as a team sport and got it into schools. Uh, the first tournament was held a year later and reportedly 600 kids participated. Four gals calling themselves the added touch placed second in the singles division and third in the doubles at the 1978 World Double Dutch Championships. And then they continued on to take it higher and higher. And they, as they say, they reinvented themselves and became the Fantastic Four. We changed our name, changed our attitude, and we brought it. The Fantastic Four became the Double Dutch World Champions in 1980, which led to appearances in McDonald's commercials, 
a spotlight in the Emmy Award-winning 1981 documentary, Pick Up Your Feet, and invitations to demonstrate double dutch at schools across the country. So I know that's a bit of a departure from our normal great wide open purview, but not everyone in the world is as fortunate as us to have a huge backyard in which to exercise our recreational pursuits. So it's really inspiring to see these kids getting out, getting after it, and their physicality is just dizzying. The term pick up your feet is something that you hear in the documentary with the girls chiding each other to pick up their feet and keep jumping because when you step on the rope, it's all over. And if you are just tuning in, this is Lisa, your host of Great Wide Open, and we are in the midst of our annual holiday media at large review show. The first part of the show was dedicated to books we should all have on our reading table this winter, and the second part of the show has been on the visual side of things. And no place has better visuals than our own home turf of Moablandia. Two of the films I'm going to talk about today involve that stunning landscape we call home, and both of these videos or movies are about mountain biking forays. This fall, we saw the release of two films that were basically centered around Moab's world-famous Holt Enchilada Trail. One is pretty much a feature-length film. The other is a short. And while they are similar in the sense that they both entail insane adventures on the whole Enchilada Trail, they are quite different in what the goal of the athlete was from the outset. In the whole enchilada, Hannah Otto's FKT ride, available free on YouTube, we see Hannah Otto's attempt to take off from the streets of Moab and climb on her mountain bike all the way up to Burrow Pass and then ride back down to the takeout at Grand South Canyon in what is now claimed as the fastest known time, thus the FKT, of that ride. Sometimes as athletes, we create these pursuits that might seem, I don't know, slightly insane to the casual observer, like my mom might be saying to me, why on earth would you want to climb with ropes and clanky gear up the face of Mount Washington where you could simply hike up, or better yet, you could even take this several-mile car ride and be on top of Mount Washington and have all these spectacular views. But as outdoor athletes, those are not typically the pursuits that we are drawn to, so we have to find ways to make things more interesting, challenging, physically different, or something that just separates us from the crowd, or setting a goal that we did not think was physically possible by anyone, let alone ourselves. Hannah shows this in the short of her adventure of setting out to try to achieve this fastest known time. Hannah Otto based her plan off of what is called a Strava segment. If you are unfamiliar with that terminology, Strava is a site where people can post their recorded times. They have to use an app. They record their time. They can compare themselves to other athletes. And one can establish these things called fastest known time. Emphasis will be placed on known because there could be people out there shredding every day who are not using these apps to post their time. But Hannah based hers off of a previous time of over six hours for this 55-mile ride, and she was able to complete that, spoiler alert, in under six hours. Uh, I say spoiler alert because this wouldn't be a film if she did not succeed in this goal, so I don't think I am dropping any bombs by telling you what happens, but 
How it happens is what's most interesting in a situation like this. It's the uh, the journey, not the destination, so to speak. And it's an insane amount of preparation and planning and support that goes into an endeavor like this. I'm sure Hannah would be the first person to say she would not be able to achieve a goal like this were it not for her support team. I'm sure Braden Bringhurst, the protagonist of our next film, would concur 100% and does concur 100% that a support team is everything when you come up with a crazy adventure. Braden also created a plan uh, centered around the whole enchilada, but his was audacious in a completely different way. Like Hannah, he started in town, but he started at what is conventionally considered the end of the whole enchilada trail. While people do ride the Porcupine single track and other parts of the Porcupine Rim Trail and subsequently whole enchilada in an uphill direction, this is not typically the route people choose. Most people will be shuttled to the top of the mountain ride uphill to Burrow Pass, and then descend those 8,000 feet into town. And while Braden may not be the first person who has ridden this trail in, quote, reverse, he is probably the first person who set out intentionally to clean the entire ride. What mountain bikers, or specifically Bringhurst in this case, mean by clean is to do all the difficult sections of the trail. Well, basically to ride the whole trail without walking any section of it. And what Braden Bringhurst sets out to do is not necessarily never put his foot down, but to never walk any section of the trail. So he spends about two years learning the trail, identifying the cruxes that he thinks will be the most important to have previous knowledge of. And in climbing parlance, he sets out to send all these segments of the trail. Braden identifies four sections of the trail um, as being of particular concern, and a lot of the film is spent watching him um, session these segments and it's really engaging and enthralling in the sense of his complete commitment. The filmmakers, one of whom is his wife um, and number one supporter, document attempt after attempt after attempt. And on some of these, you're seeing attempt 40. And you start to question, rightly so, as I'm sure everyone around him did, if this is going to be an even remotely feasible goal. Going back to the concept of support, no one can do any sort of big objective like this without a lot of support. And he has a great team, um, including, and I'm going to give a shout out to our own local Kyle Mears, who was an integral part of this, from what I can tell watching the movie. And Kyle helps him both train the segments that he needs to project in order to have the confidence to ride them clean on the big day and also support rides with him the day of the big event. And the day of that big event was this past fall, and there was a lot of pressure on this team. There was a storm coming in, and as we all know, once that storm hit the LaSalle's in October, it was game over in the mountains. And from what I can tell from the footage, he pretty much was right at that cusp. What started out as a seemingly beautiful day ended in mixed rain and snow up high on the mountains. And yeah, so I'm just giving a shout out, not just to Kyle, but to the entire support team who was up there on the mountain with him, um, encouraging him, helping him with his nutrition, filming him. This feels like a little bit of a trivial critique, but some of the film quality at the end of the ride was a little bit, um, let's just say, challenged. It seems like it was probably phone filmed. The conditions were far less than accommodating for filming, but 
they were still able in these really difficult conditions to capture Braden's emotions and his emotional state throughout. Uh, that plays a really big part in this film. And I was actually surprised at how riveted I was by this film. I thought I might casually watch it out of the corner of my eye while I was doing yoga or some other such thing, vacuuming, I don't know. But I found myself just glued to the chair. Uh, we watched it in its entirety. Yeah, this this household was completely enthralled by this film, and that is something that took me a little bit by surprise. So kudos to you, Braden Bringhurst, for your accomplishment, but also kudos to your wife and family and all of your support team. I feel like you really made it clear, he really made it clear, that it takes a village to do something like that. Another side note from this film is um, the mental training aspect of it was also quite fascinating. And the whole concept of positive reinforcement and biofeedback in order to accomplish a seemingly daunting goal. That was a really cool part of this film. Okay, well, it's been about 15 minutes since we've talked about climbing. So without further ado, let's head to a film that encapsulates a bunch of concepts we've talked about today about the head game that is involved with doing these sports and the mental and emotional journeys the athletes have to go through and the very real consequences of lives lost when high-stakes, high-risk activities are pursued. There's a fine line between badass and dumbass, and it's not easy to recognize where that line is, but you know when you cross it. All of these elements are there at once. The rock, the water, the air, you know, and the fire inside. The rock doesn't discriminate, and it's up to you to adapt yourself to the rock. It's not normal to be 80 feet above your station and on a rope that's as thick as your finger. I don't climb to pursue that, the typical adrenaline rush. Generally, that's not a part of rock climbing. If that happens, it's a bad thing. Well, I think it's a really, really fine line between life and death. We're so close to it all the time, we don't talk about it. You know, I don't really want to fall to my death off a wall. I'm sort of hoping to die. 94, you know, it's like a couple of grandkids. That's a risk that I don't want to take. Fear keeps me alive. And the fear is telling me you're going above your ability. We weren't even hoping to, to do the climb anymore. We were just hoping not to die. It's a game that puts pressure on people to think about what are they going to post today instead of what am I going to climb today? In a split second, it can go from an amazing day to the worst day of your life. There is a very serious consequence. You can get really injured or you can die. You may not be surprised to learn that the final film we're going to review today for the annual Great Wide Open Media Review Show is called Fine Lines. Fine Lines is a documentary that came out in two. 2019 and is described as an introspective journey on the lessons life has taught 20 legends of the vertical world. The description goes on to say, at times brutally honest, other times pensive, these athlete stories reveal the triumph of the human spirit and the profound and unique connection formed as they overcome the world's fiercest physical and mental obstacles. Fine Lines delivers on all those topics in spades. And it is fascinating to hear these luminaries uh, speak about their own fears and their own ways to manage the risk in the sports they do, but to still pursue their dreams. A really cool part of this film, uh, they do quite a good job of actually talking to one athlete about another athlete and giving that person's perspective on how they perceive 
the other person's uh, relationship with risk or relationship with the terrain on which they choose to forge forth. For example, you hear Olympic competitor and one of the most renowned sport climbers in the world, Adam Andra, talk about the free soloist discipline in climbing, which he chooses to not pursue as he considers it to be too high of a risk for the reward, yet he completely respects the pursuit of this discipline and the insane amount of mental tenacity as well as physical prowess one must have to pursue this part of the sport. A very moving segment of this film deals with lives lost in the mountains. Most of the people who are in this film have lost someone they love in the pursuit of these dreams. And since this film has been released in 2019, a couple of the people who are in it are no longer with us. So it's kind of an intense emotional journey, especially in this small world of climbing and mountaineering where a lot of people are quite friendly with each other. They know each other quite well. So it seems really personal when you get to these parts about life and loss and realize that not everybody in this film is still with us. I'll also note that this film features one of our local athletes, Steph Davis, and has some stunning film footage from our Moab area. So that concludes our 2022 Great Wide Open annual winter holiday media review. I hope you will find some of these books and films intriguing and we'll put them on your to-read or to-watch list. As with all things Great Wide Open, we will include links to all the films and books we covered today in the show notes when the show gets loaded up at kzmu.org. You can listen to this show streaming on kzmu.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you all so much for tuning in, and I hope you have a great, wide open day. You can catch Great Wide Open on the KZMU Airwaves every second Monday of the month at 4 p.m. Archives are at kzmu.org or on your podcast player at KZMU Public Affairs.